Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the podcast, is for education only. Some of the subject matter could be triggering for those that are newly grieving or in a poor state of mental health. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. My guest today is Frank King. Frank King was a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years. And he actually holds the record for the longest non-stop comedy club road trip ever. Which is kind of amazing. It began the day after Christmas in 1985. He and his wife, they were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row. That's comedy club after comedy club. And as he says, cheap motel room to cheap motel room. No home, just the post office box and voicemail. Now, I want you to know that along the way, he's worked with the greats. Jerry Seinfeld, Jeff Foxworthy, Ron White, Adam Sandler, Dennis Miller, Ellen DeGeneres, Rosie O'Donnell, Kevin Nealon, Bill Engvall, Dr. Ken Jeong, Rita Sirleaf, and Kevin James. And that's only to name a few. Since he became a public speaker on suicide prevention in 2014, he's already done five TEDx talks. He's got another one scheduled. And he's in the second round of editions for Duke TEDx. I am so excited to introduce you to Frank. So thank you so much, Frank King, for coming and joining me here today on Suicide Zen Forgiveness. I really appreciate your uh, your quick thinking and your consideration in popping by so fast. I got the email like essentially said, "Are we still on for like one Easter day?" I'm like, uh, 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 <laughs> "I don't know." I. Uh... <laughs> Well, I love the fact that you said yes. I think it's wonderful because uh, I know I know I probably would have said yes too, but it would have had some weird thoughts to start off with, and that's kind of what brings us here today. As I said, okay, we are now talking with the mental health comedian. He's a TEDx speaker, not once, like a a multiple time TEDx speaker who really knows the subject of suicide inside and out. And I wanted to do, well, it's serious because of what we're talking about, but I think kind of like me, you have a bit of a bent sense of humor and bringing the humor into it is kind of what makes us go on, right? Well, it actually makes it more digestible for the audience. Absolutely. It's, it's people ask me, do you tell jokes about depression and suicide? No, it's funny personal stories yeah. like this one. This happens frequently. Somebody called me, a gentleman, and he was late calling me. And he said, Frank, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm late. I didn't mean to leave you hanging. And I said, you want to rephrase that? 
<laughs> and he was he was horrified. I go, man, relax. I just I couldn't let it go by. So that's where the humor is. It's a funny personal story. Yeah, and and it is funny when it relates to us. People don't always get it when we're being funny, because as our audience knows. I'm not just a suicide survivor. I'm one of those left behind. Fitting both categories, I truly do have a bent sense of humor. And that's why we really want to talk to Frank. So can we go back to the beginning for you and give us a little insight into what took you down this path? Because I don't think at five you wanted to be a suicide prevention speaker. No, but in fourth grade, I told my first joke, the kids were laughing. The teacher was so hysterical. She had to go to the teacher's lounge. She had to excuse herself. And I thought at that moment, I thought I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. And then 12th grade, there was a talent show. I won. Nobody had ever done stand-up before. And I did, and I won. And I told my mama, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. And she said, son, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you're going to be a goat herder with a degree. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of college degrees, moved to San Diego just by chance. In San Diego, there's a branch of the world famous comedy store, the one on Sunset. And that was the beginning of the end of my insurance career, my first marriage. My first wife was a wonderful woman, but did not really want a comedian for a husband. I can't blame her. Um, so, and my first open mic night, I'm on stage, I'm halfway through my five minutes and I heard a little voice inside my head, you're home. My second thought was, I'm gonna do this for a living. I have no idea how, but I'm going to. A year later, uh, I was dating another, uh, another lovely woman. And I said to her, I'm going on the road to be a stand-up comedian full time. Do you wanna come along? Figuring she'd go, oh, hell no. And she goes, yeah. So she and I were on the road. She just came along for the ride for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop, seven years and change. Wow. And we worked with Ellen and Rosie and Seinfeld and Dennis Miller and Ron White, Jeff Foxworthy, and opened up for Lou Rawls and the Beach Boys and Neil Sedaka. You know, it, was, it was a great tour. I did a little radio when that ended. And then by the time I got fired from radio, as you would, the comedy club circuit was dying off. So I got into the corporate after dinner, after lunch, the rubber chicken circuit, they call it down here, down south. And I did that for about 10 years. And then the recession hit, 8, 09, and 10. And we lost everything in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that's what, that's where I found what, found out what my, I'm sorry, that's when I found out what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Came awfully close to killing myself. Um, spoiler alert, I didn't pull the trigger. Yeah. Yeah, I know. The audience always laughs kind of nervously at that. And I go, look, a friend of mine came up a couple of weeks ago at a keynote and he thought he'd be funny. And he goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? <laughs> That's the comedy that I bring when I talk about the serious subject. So when the recession eased up and they started booking conferences again, the meeting planners, speakers bureau said to me, Frank, we love you. We can't pay you that kind of money anymore just to be funny. You have to teach our audience something. So I'm thinking I've got, I'd always wanted to do that, but I always want to make a living and a difference, but I could never figure out what I had to teach anybody. And I bought a book by a woman named Judy Carter called The Message of You, Turning Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. Judy's a friend of mine. And going into it, I thought I got nothing. 
halfway through, she kind of walks you through finding out what she calls your heart story, the one you can't help but share. And sure enough, about halfway through, I thought, I do have something. My, my grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. And if you're that close to an act of suicide, you're already hardwired for it. Yeah. It's called generational depression and suicide in my family. If you're already hardwired for it, as I was, and you're that close to an actual suicide, there's a good chance you'll seriously consider taking your life at some point. And so I decided with my personal story, my family story, and some training in suicide prevention, I could keynote on that. So I got the training and I've had several since, several different curriculum. And I began speaking on suicide prevention. However, Having been a comic at that point for like 25 years and a comic only, I had to rebrand. And my wife said to me, do a TEDx. And I said famously, what's a TEDx? <laughs> and by just by, by coincidence, happenstance, I got an invitation from a TEDx in Vancouver, British Columbia. Did I want to apply? So I applied and I got it. Wow. And I went up, it was um, the fall of 14, I think. And I, I decided I would come out on stage as depressed and suicidal. Nobody in my family knew. My wife didn't know. My friends didn't know that I was living with major depressive disorder and something called chronic suicidal ideation, which is far more rare. And I came out on stage as, you know, that, that's me. That's who I am. And I also taught the audience. The good news, I said, is here's the good news. Eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. Nine out of 10 give hints in the week leading up, the seven days leading up to an attempt. The trick is you need to be able to spot the signs and symptoms of depression and thoughts of suicide, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do. So in my TEDx at the very end, I said, look, I'm going to give you your first lesson in mental health first aid. And I taught the audience how to spot the signs and symptoms, what to do, what to say, how to find resources. And I've done five TEDx talks all on mental health or mental illness, one aspect or another since then, as a way to, to reinforce the brand. And a friend of, a friend of mine, for, to whom I'll always be grateful, said, you're the mental health comedian. And uh, I bought the URL immediately. And uh, that's my brand. I am the mental health comedian. And, and people ask me, do they not book you to speak about suicide because you're a comedian? I go, no, you got it backwards. They want to hear the lived experience. They want to learn something. And the fact that I can leaven it with some, you know, good, tasteful, organic comedy makes it all that more appealing. So that's how I went from comedian, from speaker, as uh, Judy Carter who wrote the book, The Message of You would say, I went from funny speaker to speaker who's funny. Yeah. And people ask me, what's the difference? I said about $2,500 a night plus travel. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because we teach people something. And then I tell my speaker coaching clients, because I coach TEDx and I coach speaker marketing, I go, look, you need to figure out who your ideal clients are. And an ideal client is somebody who has an annual convention, uses outside speakers, got money to pay your fee, and here's the linchpin. They have a need, a desperate need to hear what you have to say. You're addressing a pain point. You're solving a problem. I don't care how good your keynote is. If you're not solving a problem for them, why would they book you? So I chose five or six of the top at-risk occupations for suicide in the U.S. And those are the only people I market to. It's uh, dentists, veterinarians, physicians, attorneys, agriculture, and construction is number one at-risk occupation. 
So that's, 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 that's what I believe in speaking or any business as an entrepreneur, you, you need to pick a lane. So I chose suicide prevention speaking. I can do other things, but that's, and then you pick ideal clients. Who needs it? Who's going to pay you for it? So that's, that's where I, and I, today I was at um, a college showcase. It's the students come to this national showcase with their budgets and their advisors and they book comedians and jugglers. They also book speakers. There's a speaker track. And so I speak in colleges because even though the suicide rate went down during the pandemic by about a point and a half, the only demographic where it went up is youth and, and college students. So they desperately need, and, and I read this this morning, 60% of college students nowadays report, report anxiety. Yeah. And that's double what it was a decade ago. So it's basically anxiety, stress, and suicide prevention. That's, that's a whole lot on your plate. And I think it's truly incredible that you had 25 years of treading the boards to make you a really good speaker. Because I believe that if you don't have a little funny when you speak, it doesn't matter to me what you're talking about. You've got to have a sense of humor. And it should always start with you. If you're going to make someone the butt of the jokes, make it yourself. Oh, yeah. Always safe target. Yeah. And then my first TEDx talk, uh, I had several spots where I said, you know, I did some research. I went to TED want to see how other people handle the topic of suicide figuring there'd be dozens of topics yeah. dozens of speeches on suicide yeah. and there were three yeah. three yeah. and then it hit me well duh if you're really good at suicide chances are you're not going to be recording a TEDx that was my first joke and they're like ah, that's funny it, it is and we're really glad that you weren't really good at it because I'd be chatting with myself today that is correct. Yeah, I, I am delighted to still be here. It, it was It's odd, I think, a little ironic that that by coming that close to ending my life, I realized what my life's purpose was. Because that, this is my passion and my purpose. Absolutely. I, I want to go into the suicidal ideation as mm -hmm. sort of a, a life piece, because that's not something people talk about a lot. It's not something we hear an awful lot and in all honesty it's why i looked for you well and and i spoke at a speakers and entrepreneurs conference last week in texas and i talked about chronic in my presentation i talked about chronic suicidal ideation and i said what it means is for me and people like me in my tribe the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small and when i say small my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts on bed and get it fixed, buy a new one, and I could just kill myself. And I said, the upside of sharing that story, because that's really why people hire me, to bring me in to start the conversation. Because once I start it, once I'm vulnerable on stage, it gives other people permission. It's, it's to give voice to their feelings and experiences. So I said, every time I've spoken since 2014 and talked about chronic suicidal ideation, there's always been one person in the audience who has that. They don't know it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak and completely alone. And I had done a college presentation. A young woman came up afterwards. She said, I enjoyed your presentation. I said, great. She said, but I got to tell you, it made me weep. I didn't make you weep. She goes, you know, you know your story about the car, get it fixed, buy a new one, and kill yourself. I've been having those thoughts all my life. I did not know that had a name. 
I thought I was just some kind of freak and completely alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I am not alone and I wept. Now, fast forward, last week, I told that story. At least one person knows every time since 2014. I sit back down and at a break, a young woman came over and grabbed my arm and touched my arm. And she goes, I'm the one. You're the one what? I'm the one in the room who has chronic suicidal ideation. She did not know it had a name. But the odd thing is she has it and her mother has it. So unlike anybody I've ever met, she assumed everybody thought that way. She assumed the reverse, that that's just the way people think. I said, no. <laughs> but so she wasn't discomfited. She didn't feel like a freak. She just figured everybody thought that way. Yeah, not everybody do that. So anyway, but every time I've spoken, what I tell mental health speakers is you do your 45 minutes, you do general Q&A. And I always tell the audience, look, if you have something you want to talk about, you don't want to talk about in front of everybody, like, hey, I'm crazy. Can you help me? <laughs> I'll stick around another half an hour or whatever, however long it takes to talk to anybody who wants to chat afterwards. And there's usually a line of people that want to share a story, oftentimes things they've never told anybody else. Uh-huh. But as Brene Brown said, I was reading her book on vulnerability, and about halfway through, I thought, oh, God. That's my superpower. That's what it is. That's why people open up because I'm vulnerable first and a guy and guys don't normally talk about this. Kind of thing. That's why eight out of 10 people who die by suicide are men because they just, they got the, you know, big boys don't cry at too. Absolutely. And from 45 to 64, yep. the, the younger, the millennials are a little more in touch with their feelings. They'll yep. acknowledge if there's something wrong our generation or their generation, because I'm past that, uh, they they don't. And men know, you know, women boomers, we, our men were supposed to be strong. They didn't have feelings. They didn't show things, which is really weird when you think about it. But well, that's, that's what we grew up with. And it comes as a real shock when you realize that the people around you are not made of stone. They're well, actually real people. It's not just mental things that men don't take care of themselves with. They wait too long when they have a lump in their testicle. They wait too long or don't have a colonoscopy or don't have a PSA test. I mean, colon cancer and prostate cancer are eminently curable if you catch it early. Yeah. Yeah. But men just, you know, men heart attacks. They just, you know, it's, they rationalize. It's got to be the burrito. Can't be my heart. I, when I'm on, when I worked the cruise boats, cruise ships as a comic, I would frame the house lights halfway up, and I would often chat with the audience back and forth. And I've had, I've had two aortic valve replacements, a double bypass, a heart attack, and three stents. And so I asked the audience, anybody here have a chest cracked? And a guy raised his hand, and I asked him, you know, well, why'd you have your, you know? And he goes, uh, what'd you have done? And the guy goes, uh, a bypass. I said, how many? He goes, I don't know. I was asleep. But if you ask a man, I always ask him, okay, now let me ask you this. From the, from the onset of symptoms to the time you saw a doctor, how long was it? And sometimes it was two weeks to two years. If a woman does not observe the symptoms and drag them to the emergency room, men will put off going and having it worked on. It just, it's something, it's that male, what is it, mascul- uh, masculine toxicity, male toxicity. 
we just, you know, that's just not the way we're wired. Many of us are. I, I, I've had so many. Um, I was born with high cholesterol. Thank you, my mom. Bad heart valve. Thanks, dad. Um, so I've been seeing physicians ever since I was 25, which the upside of a chronic illness is I'm seeing doctors all the time. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's, it's, I think you'll live longer if you take care of those. I had a pain in my back the other day and I finally realized it was my office chair. I need lumbar support, but I thought, Ooh. because I had a couple of friends, they didn't realize, one of them didn't realize he had colon cancer. The other one didn't realize he had prostate cancer until, until their backs began to hurt. Yeah. And what's happening is the cancer is moving into the spine. That's why it's painful. Ooh. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> I've got cancer. And um, my, my doctor goes, no, Frank, you need lumbar support. <laughs> no happy medium there. One no. extreme or the other. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't going to wait. I wasn't going to wait. I mean, Smart. I waited a week. I tried, you know, heat and whatever and Tylenol. I said, End of the week, if it doesn't get better, I'm seeing somebody. Because I'm not going to be that guy who, yeah, I just, you know, I haven't been a doctor in 25 years. Right. <laughs> well, we wrote, we written a series of books. We have, it's a four book series. Yeah. It's kind of like Chicken Soup with the Soul. It's, um, it's a men's mental health book series because there was no such thing. No. So we decided that was a vacuum. If you'd like a copy, an audio version, because I, I narrate them. If they go to my website, the mental health comedian, or yeah. you say down south, the media, mental health comedian. Uh. You put in an email address, you can download the MP3. It's four and four and a half hours on the bridge. Me, me reading the first, you know, narrating the first book. It's free. Um, and we should have the second, second, third book are already up on Amazon. Fourth one should go out sometime in April. And that'll be the end of the series. Each book is twelve guys. Twelve. Each one has a different issue. Oh, that's and, wonderful. Well, we surveyed men. We said, "What do you want in a book?" on mental health they said we want real guys real problems and how they're really coping so we can do whatever they're doing so that's what we did and we thought we'd be lucky to get 12 guys to come out and say i you know have this issue well we got 64 wow weren't expecting that no it went from like you know like a thousand pages so we had to divide it into four you know 12 guys each each book oh that's great Yep. So and it's a manual, and we found more women buy it than men. And we think it's because they've got a man in their life who has some mental challenges, and they just cannot figure out. Yeah. So there's resources and exercises and suggestions, and for people who love it, it's for men or or anybody who loves. Them, who loves them? Absolutely. We will make a point uh, for the audience that will be in the notes. It will be. Uh, with the podcast notes and it will be below the video on YouTube as well because I think it's critically important along with all of the information about uh, how to get to Frank. Frank King can do pretty much I think anything you're going to need done whether it's mental health whether it's speaking (laughs) whether it's coaching I mean life coaching is important and having a little fun with thing, I think is even more important. Well, uh, and on, I, don't, I don't do life coaching. I just do TEDx. Co- I co- coach people to get sorry, TEDx. TEDx. Yeah, somebody, there's so many life coaches out there. Some guy well, called me yeah. from Portland. He goes, hey, man, do you do life coaching? I said, no, I do TEDx coaching. Oh, darn, he said. I said, do you need a life coach? He goes, yeah. I said, here's the deal. You're in Portland? Okay, go outside, pick up a rock, throw it. You'll hit a life coach. <laughs> trust me. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, pardon me for that. Absolutely. Well, Uh, TEDx coach, which I think is 
is phenomenal. Well, and in my mental health work, I decided I actually bought the domain name for a year. I'm a save a life coach. Oh, oh see, now that's good. Yeah, okay, my aspiration is to make sure you don't get to your destination before you're supposed to. That's excellent. Oh, I like that. We got to put that one up there. Save a life coach. I think that makes perfect sense because that makes a really good hashtag too. Yes. And, that, and I think I, I Googled it. I don't think there's any other Save a Life coach out there. Lots of life coaches. Wow. But not, yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes a huge difference. Well, I have to say thank you ever so much. This has been wonderful, funny, informative, uh, really, really important topic. And the fact that you share it so willingly and that you're here with us today, I just, I cannot thank you enough. I know the audience will find this incredibly useful and important and make sure you download download the book and get in touch with Frank because we'll have all of his socials and everything in the transcripts for the podcast. Thank you so much for spending some time with me, Frank. This has been Frank King, our guest. I'm Elaine Lindsay, and this is Suicide Zen Forgiveness. Remember to make the most of your today every day, and I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you on page one in the search results.